What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look at pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I am here with my co-host, Dave Martinson. Dave, happy 311 day, man. Not a 311 fan. This day means nothing to me. Oh, but is it man. important for you? Eh, not, I mean, it's not a really important day, but it's fun to uh, listen to 311 every once in a while. They're a chill band from the 90s and early 2000s, and I came on to like Amber, obviously, which is their biggest hit. Speakeasy was a big one for me, and 51st Dates, what, Love Song was the cover that they did, which is a pretty good love song, pretty good cover people like so yeah shout out 311 a very timely band to be talking about we're gonna be talking about a couple albums and then we're gonna be doing a superhero pretty much the rest of the time a tv show on netflix called umbrella academy we watched all of it came out we're gonna talk like or not then obviously captain marvel was the big release of the weekend that pretty much everybody in the world is talking about gonna be interesting to see what our takes are on that but let's start with our guy gestaffelstein second album hyperion a couple weeks ago, I don't know how this happened. We talked about, I think, three or four artists that dropped their third album. And this week we're talking about two artists who dropped their second solo album, their sophomore solo albums. Strange. Huh. How about that? <laughs> what do you think of Gustafelsine, though? The Hyperion. Yeah, I haven't heard his first record left in 2013. Uh, I know he kind of became like a cult figure in the EDM scene around that time. I think a big part of that was because... He kind of like stopped touring and just went radio silent around 2015. And everyone was just kind of hyped about music he was making, synthy house music, I guess you could say, which is kind of going against the grain as like dubstep was hitting its peak at that time. So he's this like well-known guy, but only like for EDM heads. And then he comes back last year produced, or featured on two songs on the weekend surprise uh, My Dear Melancholy EP, which is definitely like his most mainstream effort yet. And then I think at the end of this past year, there were some teases, oh, new album, Stein, get ready. And then sure enough, we get this Hyperion record album cover. It's just all black. It kind of fits his aesthetic as like mm-hmm. a mysterious figure. I liked it quite a bit. I don't listen to a lot of electronic music straight up these days. Obviously, it's influenced the production of various other genres all the time. So it's not like you don't hear electronic music, but just straight up EDM album. I, I don't usually check too many of these out. I remember like R.L. Grime was someone I used to follow a lot, but I kind of just fell off because I didn't really like the records. But this one, I thought it was pretty cool. I, you know, just it's synth. It's got those loops kind of reminded me of like an old school Dead Mouse album vibe where you just kind of like get into these tracks. And they just kind of vibe. But the thing with Xophelstein is he peppered it in with some obvious pop attention. Weekend feature, Pharrell feature, Heim feature. You know, I thought it overall worked pretty well. I mean, it's 30 minutes and then there's that 10 minute closer track. So it's not too tedious to listen. But what do you think? So Gustafelstein is interesting. I was like vaguely aware of who he was just because California and uh, Trans was a really good one that, that he dropped. The, these songs were like big at the time. People were talking about, oh, he's the future of EDM. He's going to be this, this huge name that's going to be propelling the genre forward. And then he kind of fell off. He went more into production. And he produced a couple songs off Yeezus, actually. He produced Black Skinhead yep. and Send It Up. And those songs sound that whole album sounds like nothing that was coming out at the time so even more hype was around him and obviously it wasn't just him and kanye you know, daft punk was heavily involved in that album but he's a very exciting artist and then this project i don't want to say it was disappointing because I, I i don't know if i had a baseline to be super disappointed with it but i think i just didn't find it to be as forward thinking as i expected it to be and i didn't sure. find it to be as like wow i've never heard something like this before but i thought everything on there was real quality the only song i didn't really like was the song with Hain 
so, so bad. Which <laughs> you think it's aptly named? Yeah, <laughs> not a great song. Although I give Haim a lot of credit for doing something outside their comfort zone on that song. I mean, yeah. I, when I saw Haim was on this, I did a double take. Thought I was hallucinating for a second, but the rest of it I thought was all quality. Especially I, I thought from Forever through Memora really was like a seamless transition from song to song, and they really stood out to me. I don't know, though. Gustafelstein, he's been getting all this hype with The weekend, and I don't know if, if I agree he should be receiving all the attention he has been receiving. He does kind of just remind me of, like, he's like a darker Zed, I guess. Is that, is that, is that a, a mm, thing, Interesting. So to speak? I don't know. There are some pop collaborations, like Zed on here. It's a, it's a, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, Forever, I thought, actually kind of jumped out to me, because Electric Youth is featured on that. And I, I like, learned who Electric Youth was via the drive soundtrack that real hero song the ryan gosling film right i uh, really like that as an original movie song i think like probably reset the second track that'll probably get edm has attention really good i i think you're right like it, it doesn't have any like grand moments to like be like here edm is back edm is like this is the dude like you know, he's it's really subtle you know and i'm sure people that are like this is their scene i think they probably have more thoughts than we do on it but I mean, think about the pop songs. I thought like, I actually liked Pharrell on this. He's yeah. probably one of his more fun features in a while. And Lost in the Fire, I mean, that's already on our Spotify playlist. Check that out. Nostalgia Best of 2019. But I think that's like that's like a fine weekend performance. It's pretty typical for what he does. But it does have that fuck you straight line, which is kind of important poor taste, I would say. But I still think that song actually is pretty cool. There's a nice bass line on that. So yeah, I mean, I think this will probably do more for people that were like really looking forward to it, I'd imagine. But I thought it was a pleasant listen. As I was listening to this, Blade Runner 2049 kept coming into my mind. Because I felt like everybody <laughs> in that world is listening to Gustafelstein all the time. Especially, like, that scene where he's, like, walking. There's that huge billboard of the girl, like, yeah, who's, like, uh, oh, yeah. lap dancing or whatever. Or strip dancing. That's the type of music that they play in those clubs. Like, Gustafelstein makes the soundtrack to the future for that. So Gustafelstein is just Jared Leto. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really funny to think about. Like, imagine if like Ryan Gosling was just, like sitting there and he's like, "Listen to my house record." And he just like started playing Gustavo. This is why you went away for years. Yeah. For this, uh, man. No, I-, I think people should check it out. Especially, he's going to be doing a lot of festivals this summer. So if you're not uh, yep. aware of him, this is the time to be checking in. Um, I think we'll probably be seeing a little bit more of him and probably producing a lot of albums that will come out this year. At least have his hands all over those things. So. Check him out. Juice World also dropped an album this weekend, Death Race for Love, his sophomore album, as I already mentioned. We've been talking about him a lot recently. We know he had the collab with Future, end of last year? Last fall, last yep. Fall. And I think we also... Re- October. Did we review his, his debut album? Yeah, we got to Goodbye and Good Riddance a little late. That originally dropped in May, but we got a few weeks late. Once uh, Lucid Dreams, the single from that, was blowing right. up, and... Yeah, he very quickly, I mean, he's just now 20 years old, but he very quickly became a very big figure, yet another new rap star, yet another rap figure that mixes lots of rock influences and teen angst, a lot like X and Little Peep and Uzi. So not something that's new, but something that's very much the wave. Also, another rap star that's very much mixing melodic and singing flows along with sound cloudy raps so he kind of was an amalgamation of everything that was hot amongst like new rappers which i think was kind of made him interesting but at the end of the day his songs really resonated with people like lucid dreams 
four times platinum, like massive song. It was literally, if you do just streams, it was the most streamed song of last year that was not made by Drake. Damn. It's fucking massive. It's crazy. Yeah, and, and this album sold really well. 165,000 in just the opening weekend. You know, he's kind of being lauded as the next big rap artist out of Chicago. You know, listening to him, though, you, you just mentioned a couple of people that he's compared to. I just kept thinking he's like the palatable ex, you know, in a sense where he's the sad boy who talks a lot about, you know, being alone and broken relationships. And he just does it in a way that I think more people are able to listen to it and and not feel put off. You know, X is very polarizing, not only in his personal life, but also he, you know, has basically metal like trap. And I don't know, it's it's an interesting Mm -hmm. mix, but I feel like Juice World brings in island sounds and you know electric guitars but n- not to the point where you're like oh this is like a really heavy guitar just like oh this is a nice normal electric guitar so i feel like he just kind of walks that middle line well where he brings in this this sad vibe but does it in a way that more people feel like they want to listen to right yeah you know it's funny because speaking to that fame he, he also immediately got very rich like three million dollar interscope deal last year immediately very famous very successful and that really frames a lot of the content on this. It's it's a trope, but it's I'm rich yet I'm still sad. That's Juice World right now. But also, like my thought for the second album was, oh, Juice World, yeah, he's still sad. Like he's still not doing great sometimes. It sounds like still self medicating. Still worried about that. I, you know, like please seek out help if you need it, man. But ultimately, he can like have those songs where he like speaks to his demons, and then also do a ridiculous song like syphilis which is just this raunchy misogynistic soundcloud rap song so the fact that there's actually a fair amount of variety on this record and he actually spoke to this and hit boy spoke to this who produced a bunch of the records on this they spoke to billboard about this that the interscope a and r also tried to influence this they wanted to show a lot of other sounds and show that juice world has a, a lot more versatility and you know i still think this album is too long 70 minutes 70 plus minutes 21 songs in an interlude bro 22. definitely started spinning wheels at the end and again that's not that any any of this is like egregiously bad like someone like x who was releasing 20 minute albums there were songs in that just were like offensive to your ears because <laughs> they were just sonically like jumbled and and, and ridiculous yeah. right but juice Row, this is all this is all well well constructed well mixed music mm-hmm. But I still think he started to spin his wheels and he kind of ran out of things to say. Uh, on the other hand, he does reiterate the same themes in various ways all the time. So I think he can kind of get to his point in various different ways. So I think this is probably, uh, I think it's a successful debut, obviously, financially and streaming wise, it'll be huge for him. But I think critically, like, it's probably as good as we could have expected right from the first album. And obviously, a lot of EPs before that, but that first album, we got a lot, a lot there. And like, more than anything, though, it was like, here's potential. Like, this album is not amazing, but there's a lot of potential here. And I think Death Race for Love is just kind of the natural progression of that, where, yes, there's a lot of potential here, and he's proving that he can do lots of different things, but I still want to hear more focus and refinement because he even mentioned that he doesn't really write and i'm like you don't need to do the migos thing man and just hop in the booth and show off your talent you you, you can put some more work in this i mean he said him and hip boy in hollywood made 20 something songs in like a 70 hour period and every track on this album was from that session some of them were beats were constructed from producers older otherwise but like everything was right there except for robbery which was as old as the songs from last year so i'd like to hear what he can do with a little more fine tuning no i agree and i think i actually didn't check who if, if 
he had a major producer with him on this, but I think if he could find a, a producer and creator who he feels can kind of rein him in and, and inspire him in a sense, I mean, you know, the the sad boy lane is one that is very popular right now, but is it one that is going to be sustainable for multiple albums? I think there's always going to be an element into his work, but I think he's going to need to start to find new inspiration if he wants to continue to rise. And I think he has a ton of potential. These songs are so catchy. And, you know, you mentioned like his, yep. his gift with melody and to write these, or not to write, I guess, but to come up with these really creative hooks and uh, like songs like Ring Ring or Who Shot Cupid, even though I, I was like, this con- the lyrical content is kind of lame. I was like, still like, ah, I'm enjoying this, like, I'm enjoying this song. So I think he has a lot of potential. I, I agree. I want to see him work with somebody who maybe inspires him or pushes him into finding that next level for himself. You know, you mentioned Syphilis. I don't, I'm guessing that's probably not your favorite track on this. What are the songs that stood out to you? Speaking of the production ones more, there was some cool beat switch-ups on here towards the end. The problem is it's a long record, so you kind of forget about them. But like the bee's knees, I thought that was really cool halfway through. There's a few other moments like that. On Maze, he had a, I thought a really witty bar about Pro Tools and Logic. As someone who edits audio every week for this podcast, I appreciated that line. You know, the songs on Rap Caviar right now, apart from the singles, are Make Believe and Fast. And Fast is a song that I listen to a few times, and I'm like, part of me thinks his hook just stinks. But again, it's so damn catchy. And ultimately, I think that's that's what wins in yeah. the end. And like there were songs on here that, man, you tell me you're really sad. Yet these 808s are hitting really hard right now, man. I don't know if this makes this mixes right. well. Yeah. In the meantime, I'll just ignore what you're saying and enjoy the beat, yeah. whatever. You know, I like the lead single Robbery. I think that one's pretty cool. And which makes sense. It's in the vein of the older songs he recorded it with. Bees knees, like I said, hear me calling the other single. I guess is pretty cool. That's definitely a little slower, more ballady. But anyone who was a fan before, you can find a bunch of different songs on here. What do you think? What else did you like? I already mentioned Who Shot Cupid and Ring Ring, especially the guitars in Ring Ring pulled me in the beginning, and then it was just so catchy. One of the few features on it too, with with clever on that feeling, had this like island sound to it, which I thought he he melded pretty good with his his voice and what he was saying. And yeah, Hear Me Calling, I think, is a standout on this for sure. So there, there's a lot here, which I think, you know, we talked about using long albums as a way of getting streaming numbers up. But I think, like you mentioned, he also was really very focused on this. So he had a lot to, to put out there and put it out there. <laughs> so you, you, you can find something. If you enjoy Juice World or even just hip hop in general, I think you can find something on this album to enjoy. We recommend it. And we'll put a, a track or two onto our um spotify best of which you can search nostalgia best of 2019 on spotify and follow us there and if you haven't already hit that subscribe button uh for our youtube channel uh help us grow and give us a five-star rating on itunes we appreciate all the love all right superhero time let's start with the non-marvel superheroes in the umbrella academy the stephen blackman jeremy slater the showrunners for this a netflix series which it seems like it's going to have a second season. I didn't check if that got picked up already, but the way it ended, it was 10 episodes, an hour-long episode or around that for each one. Follows this group of adopted superheroes who are all born on the same day in some like weird chance, like women becoming pregnant out of nowhere situation. Adopted by this weird guy who raises them and tries to get the most out of their powers, but they drift apart and now they're adults and present and all the family dynamics are there and they have to come together to save the world from the apocalypse. Did I, did I summarize that? Yep. <laughs> enough. 
Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. You know, Steve Blackman, one of the showrunners, he was Emmy nominated for Fargo season two and actually won a WGA for that. So definitely a smart hand, the wheel, I would say. But you mentioned you assume it got picked up. All the scuttlebutt, you know how Netflix uh, likes to tell us these things without showing their work, but all scuttlebutt is that Umbrella Academy was very well watched. I mean, we're getting to this a little late due to our, our, our schedules, but it came out back on February 15th. And you would, and like, you check like Comscore traffic and web traffic. And like, people are ch- checking this show out, but it hasn't gotten greenlit yet. And I'm wondering the reason that might be. This was not produced by Netflix. Netflix did not make this at all. They just obviously distributed it. Universal Cable Productions made this, aka Universal, NBC. I wonder if Netflix just will say, nah, we're not going to renew this because they don't actually control it or own it. Hmm. That's obviously a topic that'll come up once we hear more. But they greenlit the show back in 2017. Since then, we know they've stopped shows that they didn't really control, even successful ones like American Vandal. So that's been on my mind since I researched that and learned that. But either way, Umbrella Academy is coming at an interesting time because Netflix obviously officially canned all of their Defenders universe show. The Jessica Jones season three will come out soon. That'll be the end of it. They're all they're all done. Whether they live on Hulu, we'll, we'll find out, or Disney Plus, we'll find out one day. But in the meantime, we have the Umbrella Academy on Netflix, and it's not a Marvel or DC property, so it's inherently not as famous or well-known. And I was immediately taken with the fact that they're so clearly influenced by the X-Men. Umbrella Academy, you have all these kids learning to harness their powers, this rich, wealthy head of household, aka Professor yeah. Xavier. There's a lot of obvious analogs and spoilers for the whole season, but as we progress through the show... And once we learn more about Vanya and what actually happens with her, I'm like, oh, this is Dark Phoenix. Yeah, I know the story already. Like, it's so obvious. Actually, I wrote down X-Men meets Haunting of Hill House, the lane they went with. You know, this family that's brought back together after all these, like, issues that pulled them apart from growing up. And they have to overcome these family dynamics to solve some sort of crisis in a way. And Yeah, the X-Men parallels are so blatant. It's it's. A, Definitely out there. And I mean, this is based off a comic book series. So, relatively contemporary series, too. So, yeah, it's 2007. Yeah. Uh, it's actually still running. It's like a bunch of like limited runs. So, not that many issues. But yeah, I mean, watching the show, I think it looks cool. The saturation stands out, but the world building was pretty strong. And what's cool is, as you said, we're just kind of plopped into the, sh- the series as adults. You get some flashbacks of them as kids, but we're really picking up in the present day. And that lack of an origin story is definitely welcome. Uh, we'll talk more about origin stories in a, in a minute for Captain Marvel, but I like that choice. I think ultimately my thing with the show is while I enjoyed the show, I liked a, a bunch of the characters and performances. I did think that it was just too long. The story, I think any any smart, alert viewer can kind of grasp where this plot's going and how it will roughly end several hours before it gets there. And unfortunately, it started to spin its wheels in the middle. This was an issue that really hurt the marvel netflix shows pretty constant criticism and if umbrella academy was eight episodes heck maybe even six i think it would have been a lot tighter that being said what we got i still liked it i'm still happy i you know watched the whole thing good fight choreography like i said there's some good actors i mean i really liked like cameron Britton and mary j blige and like supporting roles i thought they were really really good so overall i think it's pretty enjoyable but only some structure issues which unfortunately has been a theme with any superhero tv these days yeah no i, I totally agree the, the pacing of the show was off the first like, four or five episodes i was kind of like okay we get this like these all could have been a half hour and we would have gotten where we needed to go 
I did feel like the show started to really catch its stride near the end, though, and I think what helped that was putting these characters together finally. Because in the beginning, it was jumping around from, what, there's seven children plus... And one's dead. And then you also have the, the two from the, whatever the, like, people controlling the timelines. The like Mary commission. And, yep. Yeah, the, the commission, right. So you have, like, nine characters you're following who, all, following who all have these different stories developed to different lengths, and it's just so kind of disjointed in a way. Like, you start getting one story that jumps to, you're getting Devanya, jumps to Klaus, jumps to number one. Like, you're just kind of all mm-hmm. over the place. So when they finally start coming together, it's like, okay, here we go. And things really start happening. You know, Vanya starts to, you know, explore her powers, and that's really interesting. Although, Ellen Page, man, I mean, I wish she had a better character to work with. I feel like she was so mopey for pretty much the whole season, and then just became this, like, otherworldly power it's like damn right it's so obvious what's happening to her but she doesn't have anything to do and like oh this guy's totally gonna be manipulating you that's just an educated guess but i'm pretty sure that's where it's going then you learn it then she learns it like it just it's too thin to be drawn out as much as it is and like ellen page i mean i just started thinking i was like man where's ellen page been we got juno obviously inception and x-men that's really it like why why has there been more ellen page and unfortunately this also feels like a bit of a miss because like once she starts being all like white evil white violin Vanya, it's like she's doing that much. Right. Like what what is there to that character other than you know, we'll talk about this with Captain Marvel, but like she's basically like a god at that point. Like no one can touch her. Kind of crazy. You know, one thing I also found, I agree, like the fight sequences are great, the musical cues are great, the music oh, in this just in general. Those great set awesome. pieces, yeah. So good. But it started to feel so formulaic. At one point, um, I was watching and uh, my my girlfriend Julianne came in and I said, "Oh, in like five minutes, there's gonna be like a fight scene with like a music cue. Just wait for it." I think it was the penultimate episode when they're in the bowling alley or something like that. Yep. And sure enough, that was like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, it was awesome. S A T U R D A Y, like all the, the shooters. <laughs> it was great. And running down the the bowling alley lanes, like it looked so cool and it looked very comic booky, which I thought was was excellent. But it just did feel almost like too predictable at points where I was like not as interested because of that. I mentioned Cha-Cha and Hazel's characters I liked. I thought their the relationship, especially Hazel's uh, character, is really well drawn uh, throughout. And they and again, they get, they get a lot to do, so that makes sense. I also thought Klaus was an obvious uh, standout. I thought Robert Sheen was really good in that role. But I mean, Great last name. <laughs> he he talks, to, talks to dead people and he stays not sober to avoid that. High concept as fuck great like we all can get on with that it's good also has ptsd like there's, there's a lot going on with him he was good we mentioned vanya i luther uh you know played by tom hopper aka dickon from game of thrones <laughs> i thought he was fine again he was kind of like we, we kind of know he's kind of a straight arrow also i i get I, I i'm not even one to like guess what's gonna happen i never really think about that much but i'm like seems like he probably has romantic feelings for allison yeah sure enough he does yeah okay Took me yep. four more hours to find out for sure. <laughs> Allison, same thing. Like I think she had like a, probably the most wasted potential. I don't think she was bad, but almost too melodramatic for for my liking. I thought we, we could have taken a different direction. But I think the clear weakest link was Diego. He, like Udora, his ex girlfriend, dies really quick. He doesn't really have anything else going on with him. And apparently that was actually a change uh, from the comics that that, that uh, the Udora character. But yeah, I thought Diego. He just seemed really headstrong and not really that interesting, and also probably the the, le- the least powerful too. So yeah, but you you didn't even mention my guy number five, 
Aiden Gallagher, I thought he was yeah, actually really good. good. Um, and obviously a very meaty role, um, but to be you know alongside all these adult actors, I thought he really held his own and played that character great. What'd you think of Mary J. Blige? Definitely not Mudbound. No, it's just campy, but yeah, it kind of fit her character. I think what she was doing that yeah. was cool. Not, not something I expected from her—a more actiony role, a more cutthroat role. But she's definitely making some cool choices as an actress i would say you know it's weird some of these scenes where time would stop for some characters or some events or motions and then other people would walk through like the pause scene reminded me a lot of legion especially because like i feel like the the visuals would look really cool in those scenes so i mean again like there's a lot of like cool influences and cool moments this was really condensed i think and maybe some other script choices were made i think this could have been like a really really strong tight season that being said, again, I, I still I still liked it. I still think there's plenty to like about it. And if this is your kind of thing, like genre stuff, if you like I mean, there's some noir elements, or if you like really out there stuff like time travel, I mean, I think this can really deliver. But it's funny, I've seen it compared to Doom Patrol, which is the new show, live action show on DC Universe streaming service, uh, which is funny, it has like Timothy Dalton in it, it has Brendan Fraser in it. Either way, it's another DC team. And... Doom Patrol is getting more love than Umbrella Academy for actually going further with the weirdness. If you think about Umbrella Academy, they almost play it too safe. I mean, we have a talking chimp butler, and Luther is literally an ape man. And yet, it still felt like we kind of just went down the middle with it. Yeah, and a mom who's a robot. Crazy. Right. <laughs> I mean, just uh, so out there. Yeah, also, one more shout out. Kate Walsh, who plays the handler. She's been on, like, Grey's Anatomy. I think it was The Bad Judge or something like that was her other show. And mm-hmm. she's, she, I thought she was really good. And every time she's on screen, she played that part really well. So, overall, good performances. Just maybe uh, the show could use some fine-tuning, some tightening up. All right, jumping to a superhero that we've been anticipating for a while. Because it's interesting, because I feel like we're anticipating her for two reasons. First, Marvel female superhero that's leading a movie but also this is really the bridge to end game which i think is you know we talked about most anticipated movies it's up there for almost everybody who's followed marvel and their run-up to avengers endgame so this was filmed uh this was directed by anna Bowden, ryan fleck done a lot of like indie movies i believe most well known for mississippi grind which was an a24 movie from 2015 so well-liked directing duo and kind of fits that more traditional Marvel mode where we'll get like lesser known directors like a Peyton Reed who did Ant-Man for example and just kind of craft them onto our vision you know this is not and we'll get to this more but this is not like a Taika Waititi or Ryan Coogler where it's like here here's the check and here's the ball disco pitch they didn't quite get to do that interesting uh, choice I would say it's an interesting choice but they still delivered because this movie made close to I think I think it made over 450 million worldwide 150 million domestic i believe definitely a success uh you know you got brie larson heading this thing samuel l jackson de-aged uh jude law ben mendelson annette benning which i was also like annette benning <laughs> uh pretty crazy that she's in a marvel movie you got all these pieces and a character who is i don't want to say relatively unknown she's been she's one of the oldest marvel characters but maybe not as popular as you know the the tier that that's been leading recently but still the first female superhero i was like this thing is gonna be a hit like no matter what i actually left feeling pretty disappointed in this movie i don't think i was disappointed to the point of saying it's a bad movie i still think it's good and watchable and enjoyable 
but I did find myself feeling they left a lot on the table. Did you have that same experience? I did. I did. I immediately realized that it wasn't Spider-Man Homecoming. It wasn't Black Panther. Two movies where their protagonists were introduced in Captain America Civil War. Captain Marvel had to set up everything from the start for the character. And as a result, really play like a more traditional origin story, one we haven't gotten since Ant-Man and Doctor Strange. Given that we've since seemingly moved past that, going back to the more traditional framing of one of these stories was disappointing to me just because the whole movie is about doing the origin. And even if I separate that, this movie unfortunately felt like it had to serve so many masters and thus was pretty overstuffed. Like, again, it has to do the whole Keller Danvers origin story front to back, has to be set in 1995 and be a throwback movie of sorts. It has to be the earliest MCU movie to date, apart from Tony Stark flashbacks, and thus set up the Tesseract and the origins of the modern shield with Coulson and Fury. Also has to give us the Kree-Skrull War from the start. Captain America was definitely the earliest set Marvel movie. Oh, yeah, good point. (laughs) Earliest modern one. Like, like he gets frozen at time. Earliest modern one. Good catch. And also has to deal with being the first female-led story in the MCU. And also, as you mentioned, has to at least tertiarily tie into Avengers Endgame. So this had a lot going on. And and if, you know, I think maybe all those parts would have worked better if it wasn't doing the strict normal origin. But because it was, I just feel like it felt a little cluttered to me. I think there's a lot of great moments, especially I think the movie really picks up once we touch down on Earth and really get it going into Act 2. But it starts slow. And I usually don't notice that on a first watch with these movies. You know, usually when I watch again, I'm, I'll be down. I'm like... Infinity War, just rewatched it. Didn't like it as much as when I saw it in the theater. But even Captain Marvel, the first time, I'm like, ah, this is dragging a little bit. And like, you can just kind of see, the, see the, the skeleton. And that's disappointing. On top of all those things you mentioned in terms of what it needs to do, um, it also kind of acts as a Nick Fury like origin story in a sense, too. You get a lot of yes, like does. how he became to uh, be the person who brings the Avengers together, um, how he gets his eye patch, like all that stuff comes about. Um, which actually, I didn't mind that. Samuel L. Jackson, I thought, was awesome in this movie. He was really fun. Definitely had the, the most humor to work with in this. And beyond that, there, it felt like this movie, I guess him and Mendelssohn were like the two having fun. The rest felt kind of serious to me, especially Brie Larson. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, oh, it would have been better if she smiled more. No. But I, I really, you have someone as charming and delightful as Brie Larson. And she kind of got stuck in that Vanya role from Umbrella Academy where she was very serious and confused the whole time. So she didn't really get to be herself. She was always trying to piece things together. And that's the thing. That's, I think, the fault of the script and the the trope that is amnesiatic elite. She's so confused, we don't really get to learn more about her. She has to learn about herself along the way. Right. And it can be a bit of a slog as a result. Yeah, like you're, you know, like Pre Larson, she won Best Actor for Room. She's really good at handling meaty stuff. And I think you get more of that at the end. But in the beginning, it's just kind of really plot moving. Yeah. You know, it is, obviously this will get compared to Wonder Woman because unfortunately these are the only two movies you can compare for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And well, I think Wonder Woman looks way better because Patty Jenkins definitely had more visual flair for it. And it's obvious Captain Marvel suffers from a lot of the Marvel issues with lighting. Mm-hmm. And I think while there was a lot of nice color, especially in space, I think the, the overwhelming or usual Marvel house style that usually results from shooting in Atlanta, Georgia, 
you still notice that with this. But Wonder Woman and Mar- Captain Marvel, I think, kind of diverge from there. And interesting, I like choices that both of them made. Like Captain Marvel, to its credit, there is no sexualizing of the character at all. And there is no romantic subplot, even a token one. I think those should not be uh, understated. That being said, I think Wonder Woman kind of made the character more engaging right away. But also Wonder Woman briefly was shown in BVS. Mm-hmm. So not apples to oranges. But yeah, Brie Larson, unfortunately, she felt like she was handcuffed a little bit in this, which is, again, disappointing given the caliber of talent she is. Yeah, and I think that, I think that again, this movie was good. But it had so much to do, and it felt like they really had to, like, stuff it in there, and that made things feel like it was very, like, in-your-face or too blatant, Mm. not subtle enough. Heavy-handed. You know, even, like, the running-through line of, you know, Brie Larson's this woman with these amazing powers, but she can't control her emotions. Like, you know, the most stereotypical, like, women are too emotional thing, which I get the point in the end was to be like, well, she's actually not, and she's able to control herself just fine, whether she's a experiences her emotions or doesn't. But it, it felt almost like you, you couldn't find a different way to maybe, like, put that feminist, like, girl power message in there other than everybody being like, you're too emotional all the time, you know? Or even, like, like the, the 90s stuff, I felt like, very, like, in your face. She finds this mannequin and steals the clothes and has a night just a very clean nine inch nails t-shirt similar to her very, very clean, clean gun- new. yeah very clean guns and roses t-shirt that was her like beloved t-shirt for going out to the bars in her flashbacks so yeah it was like the nirvana drop in particular right. was pretty uh I, yikes <laughs> which <laughs> we, get I, it, we get it guys we get it <laughs> i actually i didn't mind it but it, it didn't really make sense why all of a sudden she would have this music playing there i uh, just wanted to put come as you are which it's an amazing song. I've listened to it like 20 times since I watched the movie. Um, Just a Girl, that that drop was awesome in, in that fight scene. No doubt, yeah. Did you, did you say no doubt to the name of the band or just saying no doubt it was awesome? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so did, did you feel like those things were in your face or was that something I just kind of... The, the movie jumps tones and that can kind of get in the way with that message you're talking about where it's like a very serious, important message that should be in the movie feels like it's heavy-handed in one moment and then we have ben mendelson with a with a like a, a slurpee of some kind right just just chewing scenery so <laughs> like in the beginning it's very dour in the beginning that first act which again i thought was pretty slow um and then you get like those 90s flashback scenes that are different especially the singing scenes you know so it did feel like it jumped around a little bit, but I think by the end it started to really hone in. I think really by the time you learn that Mendelssohn as Talos is in fact a good guy, not a bad guy. I think that reveal, that twist works very well and really reminded me of the vulture twist uh, in Homecoming, a twist that you didn't really see coming. Uh, and then once you hear like, wow, that was, that was smart, that was well done. Especially for me, like the meta angle, I was like, oh, Mendelssohn, man, he's on quite the run. Orson Krennic in Rogue One, the Ready Player One guy, Sheriff of Nottingham and Robin Hood. Man, he loves being a villain. Good for him. Get that money. He's going to do it again in Marvel. Oh, wait, he's a good guy? Oh, and he's funny? <laughs> Hell yeah. I thought he, he was, him and Sam Jackson were probably my favorite performances. Definitely. And I think really where that twist happens uh, really kind of accentuates the, the movie hitting its stride. But unfortunately, it had to do a lot of table setting in the beginning, which makes it a, stops it from being a great movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Mendelssohn was fantastic and i feel like all these things kind of keep it down and i think another thing that kind of keeps it down this is more of a just a creation of the marvel universe in general but 
she's too powerful like to, to really be an interesting character when she does discover all of her powers so by the end i mean she basically just like ah oh, fuck all this and just flies into space <laughs> and destroys like a warcraft like i was like damn she's so strong that i don't know if i'm really interested to see what, what more this character can do because i don't know how there could really be a conflict now she's obviously gonna have a huge part in endgame and thanos seems like he could be a, a worthy opponent of her so it's gonna be interesting to see how they they kind of tie all these things in um what, what did you think of the the answer that was given the other day by i forgot who it was from marvel but they were talking about uh, why hasn't Nick Fury called her before, like when Ultron was, you know, about to end the world or Loki in the, in the first Avengers. Right. And they were like, well, how do you know he hasn't? So you're telling me that she just sometimes responds and sometimes is like, nah, not right now. Good question, I guess. I feel like those are things you just kind of have to leave at the door. Mm-hmm. The scrolls are a big part of this movie. The scrolls of Wallman theorize as perhaps being the next big bad post-Thanos. I mean, obviously, we've had years, people have had years to theorize about what's next for Marvel after Endgame. And like some like Secret Invasion-esque storyline with the scrolls has long been thrown out there. But the problem with that is, like, where the scrolls obviously, they shapeshift, which I think is really cool in the movie and done well. Yeah. Um, really, I think, enlightens the action sequences once they get to Earth. But if the scrolls turn out to be like, oh, remember Hawkeye in all those movies? Yeah, he was a scroll for, like, half that time right and it's like is this some real tinfoil hat shit that i don't know if we can do again after winter soldiers like actually hydra is shield fooled ya yeah. like you know I, I don't know if we can like take it to that extreme and be like yo ant-man actually was a bad guy this whole time he just happened to be a funny bad guy like, i don't know if that would work right so it's like i think you just kind of like you got you got to just ignore it like it, it's pager tech bro yeah it takes a while to get to her i don't know <laughs> think, think of what you need to or, or Captain Marvel is like nah I, I saw it they got Tony it's fine nah, you, you just you just gotta roll with it man <laughs> did you like the, the post credit scenes I was surprised to actually see a scene that feels like it lifted right out of Endgame yeah you know actually show that uh, not really a surprise you know we knew that was happening you can watch the Endgame trailer and see a clear spot where a person was walking in the line with the other people and they edited it out it was clearly Captain Marvel but still cool, still cool to see so cool to, to see it. And obviously, they always have a funny stinger, the one with the cat, throwing yeah. up Tesseract. That was funny. The cat was funny the whole time. I, I love the whole cat. Yeah, game. for sure. And I think that the payoff with the cat actually being more than just a cat worked really well. Really, I mean, the biggest laugh out loud moment in yeah. my theater anyway. Some of the early uh, Entertainment Weekly like official photos, they had Law and Larson and their whole team walking and like meeting face-to-face with Ronan. I remember when they announced it, it's like, oh, Joe Hanshu and Lee Pace are back as Ronan and Korath, I'm like, huh, that's interesting. They weren't that great in Guardians, but they're Kree, and why not? I like those actors. And, yeah, they don't get to do anything. Nope. <laughs> Ronan is a glorified cameo, and frankly, I feel bad for Lee Pace. He's a very good-looking man, and they're like, nah, bitch, you're going to be blue again. And you're going to say, like, three words, and you're <laughs> going to be happy about it. Well, they, they pretty much set him up to be the, the Captain Marvel sequel villain. Well, I don't know if they would do that, though, because we know he dies in Guardians right. 1. So, like, what's the point? You know, I, I think, if anything, he serves as, like, the tell that, oh, wait, the Kree and yon Rog, they're, they're actually bad because they're working with Ron. You know how bad he got. You know, I think that's kind of the, the point of that. And, like, I, I like there's that one moment where, like, Ronan asks Jude Law's team is like about some information and uh, Korath's about to tell him and then Law cuts him off. That's supposed to hint that Korath's going to go and go more extreme and work for Ronan and set up where they are in Guardians 1. It's very subtle. 
that's like for like the the real heads. Yeah. But ultimately, I feel like they were just kind of just there for longtime fans of the series yeah. and little else. I was actually very disappointed that Gemma Chan wasn't better. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, anyone who didn't know about her now loves her after Crazy Rich Asians. Yep. She was Astrid. And I'm like, oh, Gemma Chan, let's go. And at least she got to fly the ship at the end and do a little something. Right. But man, she she didn't do much in the beginning. I was let down by that. Wait, I want to go back to Ronan, though, because he says the line like, I'll be back for the girl or whatever it is. And I, I really think that whether it's going to be him chasing her down while she's, you know, flying through trying to figure out things in space that there will be something related to that i don't think he'll end up obviously she wound up killing him but maybe like popping back up the problem is i'm pretty sure captain marvel 2 which we definitely know will happen uh it was guaranteed even before the movie's mass success captain marvel 2 almost surely is going to take place after avengers endgame ronan's already dead by then why why does it have to though i mean she's out in space you have what 20 years of, of time that they could film between two stories though i i just i i don't think they're gonna do anything pre-endgame endgame's a clear shift in how gotcha. the mcu functions marvel panther spider-man strange those are our new pillars there's no way they're gonna go back i mean they're probably already doing that with the black widow movie mm-hmm. so i i really don't think that they, they would go back and do like this one set in 2000 right you know no i i, I really don't think that that makes too much sense because you're, you're putting too much stock in having captain marvel come in for endgame come in out of the bullpen so to go back like oh actually no this happens before that i think it's just unnecessarily confusing to the audience i, I can see that it can make sense any last thoughts on endgame i feel like t- oh wait we didn't really talk about jude law how do you feel about his performance i mean i love jude law <laughs> jude law is awesome yeah he's great and he, he's 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 good in this too and they didn't make him blue mm-hmm. which is actually explained because the kree less pure blood kree look less blue and that's all the explanation <laughs> i need <laughs> i liked him you know he starts off as more of like an obi-wan-esque figure you know old trainer and then becomes the bad guy. It's funny, they were keeping his character name close to the vest up until like the week before the movie came out because Beyond Rock's pretty well known as a Captain Marvel villain. So I guess they didn't want to spoil that. But I, again, once you you know you get halfway through, you realize Mendelssohn's a good guy. Turn, you, you know how the rest plays out. But I liked him. I thought I thought he, he was effective. Uh, Annette Bedding though, she I thought she was just kind of there. They just need someone to play that role. I mean, they've done this countless times in Marvel because they just can throw checks. I mean, remember Glenn Close is in Guardians 1. And Gary Shandling is in Winter Soldier yeah. in these thankless parts. So it happens all the time. But yeah, I like Jude Law. Thought he, I thought he, he, he was cool. And he's not dead, which I think is cool for future Definitely. potential. I've seen people kind of saying that Benning's role was a bit confusing because she basically had three different roles. You know, whatever mm-hmm. her uh, human name was, Marvell, and you know the AI Supreme Intelligence. Yeah, Supreme Intelligence. Uh, but I actually didn't find it that way. I, I felt it was pretty easy to understand yeah that. and i thought same though, though there's issues with the script being unnecessarily i think confusing at points that was not one of them. i don't know any last thoughts on this movie uh, well to that point apparently there was a deleted scene uh this is just conjecture we don't have it confirmed but apparently there was a deleted scene of yon rog going to supreme intelligence it shows shows most who admire. you respect yeah. the most and in that scene uh yon rog sees himself so that that that's that a cool visual but it's funny because in the comics, you can just Google Supreme Intelligence. You'll see the Wikipedia article. It's just this big green head mm. with like these tubes and shit. Some some really out some there. Some Wizard of Oz, shit, shit. you know. And Marvel often will change things to make them more palatable to their the, the tone of their universe. I mean, think of uh, Ego in Guardians too. He does not look like Kurt Russell in uh in the comics. But yeah, I didn't find that confusing either. We're what a month out from Endgame. April twenty sixth, end so of April. Six weeks out. 
So, uh, you know, Marvel, Captain Marvel probably has, what, a two-week run before us hits theaters and dominates the conversation because it seems like that's going to be very good. And then we're on to Endgame. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? Disney is also releasing Dumbo at the end of the month between two of its heaviest hitters. Interesting choice, I have to yeah, say. <laughs> Dumbo looks pretty good. Big cast, too. It does, but I'm also worried about its box office potential yeah, because it's from Dumbo. the 30s and doesn't have the nostalgia of Beauty and the Beast. So interesting calendar decision. We'll see how it turns out. We got a lot to talk about. And uh, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this so that you can get all the podcasts as they come out. What do we got next week, Dave? So next week, uh, well, this week, Wednesday, uh, the 13th, Triple Frontier is out on Netflix. It's been playing in a few theaters around the country the past week, two weeks or so, in New York and LA. It's on Netflix for everyone. Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, Garrett Hedlund, Pedro Pascal, heist action movie. Reads got you pretty strong. So I'm in. hyped as fuck for that. We'll talk about that one. Two other movies come out in the theaters traditionally. Captive State, which is an interesting sci-fi movie with John Goodman that I'm very intrigued by. And also The Aftermath, a movie that me and you are both uh, intrigued for for the meta. It's the <laughs> union of Kira Knightley plays someone not in the 21st century and Jason Clark's wife leaves him. Yes. Uh, two of my favorite tropes in, in yes. modern day movie making. And of course, Arrested Development, the final half of season five comes out on netflix on friday so we'll talk about all of season five because we didn't actually talk about the first half last year yeah so good good on us for waiting <laughs> no music that i know of yet we'll see if that changes yeah i'm sure it'll be something but stuff always comes up so make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and especially on youtube because there's always more coming always more we'll see you next week yeah.